welcome to The Joy Factory, where we explore the art of happiness at work. I'm Susan DeFazio, your host and founder of Be Future Ready Today, where we develop toolkits that simplify our world of work and empower the how for happier and healthier outcomes so that people and businesses can truly thrive. Our podcast guests come from all walks of life, and today we're delighted to welcome Tristan Pritchard. Welcome, Tristan. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you this morning. Um, Tristan, a little bit about his background. Tristan is the Chief Executive of St David's Hospice in Landidno, North Wales, and has been in that role for 10 years. Before that, he worked in journalism and public relations. Tristan believes in compassionate leadership and that working to a shared purpose is at the heart of everything, and whose leadership style seeks to combine kindness, ambition and integrity, which I believe is a really fine combination and connects particularly well to our theme for this episode, Moments That Matter. Tristan and I are going to be chatting about what it means to work in a setting that offers palliative care, exploring the impact on those who contribute and dedicate themselves to caring for patients and their loved ones, how they navigate the inevitable challenges, protect well-being and find fulfilment even in the most sorrowful of times. But before we get into the nitty gritty, Tristan, I thought we could start our conversation off by asking you, what does joy mean to you personally? I think it's a, it's a condition where you, you're fairly happy with, with most aspects of your life. You're able to find the time to do the things that you enjoy um, and that you're able to to address the things that challenge you. Um, and, and we're not naive enough to think that everything in life is going to be easy. But, but I think joy can be found from achievement of having the capability to, to take on some of these challenges, but, but also the other side of, of having a lot of satisfaction from the activities that um, that you're involved in. Absolutely, because you can find joy, can't you, even when you're growing, even when you're sort of out your comfort zone. Um, that sense of achievement um, can really, when you're stretched in that way, can really feed that joyful feeling, can't it? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a strange one sometimes where you might have some very challenging problems to address or, or um, having to deal with maybe some challenging viewpoints from other people um, mm -hmm. and achieving a sense of consensus or um, maybe um, achieving a solution to an issue that you, you never really considered to begin with. I think there's a lot of joy in that process as well. Um, yeah. A lot of the people I, I've read um, from kind of management speakers to fitness guru, gurus and so on constantly say, um, if you can't enjoy the journey, then you're not really going to achieve the end goal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me that that the the joyfulness of growth is uh, it must really connect to your purpose in life. And it, it really leads me on to something that I've heard you speak about, um, you know, previously when we've talked. But you've spoken about and it's really stayed with me. It was very powerful. You talked about the being at the sharp end of humanity uh, in, in the work that you do at the hospice and leading 
leading that and leading the, that team, which is, I think, a really powerful statement. What are the values that really guide you and that you rely on as your moral compass as you navigate this? And um, it's been 10 years now, hasn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think one of the most important things by, by far is always um, retaining the cause that you're working for at the forefront of everything. So it's quite easy in some ways because if you if you're working it in a in an end of life care environment in a hospice all you need to do is take a walk down the corridor to, to, to see the cause and to see the people who, who really need um the services that, that you offer so connection to the cause there is, is fairly easy as far as that goes um but the challenge i suppose is to bring it into all aspects of the organization which are possibly quite far removed from the direct clinical service that we offer um but I remember when I took up the role, uh, somebody commented to me, and I was quite surprised, saying, um, you know, we're very, very good at caring for our patients, but we're not good at caring for our staff. Uh, and that really surprised me. Um, uh, something I was very wary of and very, very disappointed, I think, to begin with. So that's always kind of guided the way I want to approach things that, um, you know, the, the kindness and compassion is needed, obviously, for our patients and service users and families. Um, but I think if we can't show the same for each other as, as a group of staff, then then we're not ever going to really achieve our aims. So li- linking back to what you said earlier, Tristan, about, you know, when you first came in um, and the, that sort of care um, around the, the, the staff members and that was perhaps missing, um, how, do you, how do you help your team members to connect to workplace happiness in, in what must be extraordinarily difficult times or circumstances? Yeah, I think that was, was quite a challenge initially where we just wanted to improve communication and mutual respect, I think, more than anything in terms of engaging with, with our staff, in, in terms of um, involving them in decisions about where the, where the organisation was going in the future, but also acknowledging the the heavy kind of emotional toll that the day-to-day work close relationships with patients and families would, would kind of take on them, which, you know, I, I'm removed from that in my position, but I, but I totally empathise with those people. So how can we, if, if you like, just to be very informal about it, how, how do we go easy on them? You know, because it's, there is no need to be a, a draconian organisation with rules and regulations and policies for no reason. So I've, I've tried to shape it in that way. Um, I think where that has challenged me is that the organisation has grown significantly in recent years in, in terms of staff numbers, but also geographical spread. And with that, I think, comes the challenge of um, increased scrutiny, regulation, uh, needs to have very consistent procedures and policies in place because we found to our cost that it tripped us up when, when they weren't quite there for us. So I'm trying to balance it now from not drifting into a, a very rigidly managed organisation like, let's say, a local authority, but a, an organisation that retains its character, its community feel, its, its kind of mutual respect and team approach, but also has hopefully minimised the set of governing documents and policies and guidelines that it needs to follow. But the, the ones that we do have are there for a reason and, and hopefully encourage this kind of feeling of um, being in a well-run organisation and a bit of security for everything, everybody, I think. I mean, I think that you've got to have um, policies and procedures for safety and, and, and all of those good things. But how do you... I mean, because at the end of the day, you are dealing with individuals and humans. And although um, 
they may have similar kind of medical challenges. Everybody is an individual. So how do you how do you give your team that sort of flexibility or, or, or even maybe not give it? How do they take that to, to create moments that matter for, for patients and indeed for themselves? That, that's, a, I think, a good question because you know, if you were if you're running a, a corporate organisation and wanting to to hit your key performance indicators, you'd ask your ward sister, let's say, are all your policies in date? And if they're not, why not? I want them in a month, you know. Um, but we don't ask, you know, did your team was your team able to uh, take a bit of time out with with patient number one in, in that room? Did you did you were you able to spend time with them, or did you just did you just dispense some medicines and, and move on? Um, I can't measure that, and I, I, I wouldn't want to. But I want to create an environment where they think that's right. They think that's part of their role, and, and they, they themselves want to do that. So, you know, if if there's a policy lying waiting to be reviewed versus an opportunity to to engage with a patient and family in in their last few days and make them more comfortable, then I know where the value yeah, is. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think anybody around you, certainly the patients and their families, would probably wholeheartedly agree have you have you got maybe a couple of stories that you can share with us because I always you know my my encounters with hospices is that actually although you know you're dealing with sadness they seem to be uh, my experience anyway warm happy welcoming quite uplifting and quite joyful really I, I mean you know so it, that to me is almost like magic how do how do how does the magic happen in in the in the hospice that's a, that's another great question I wish I knew sometimes <laughs> it, you know it could be bottled couldn't it um I, I think I have to pay tribute to our clinical team on that one they, they create that kind of atmosphere they create the rapport with their patients and, and the families and the the carers and they do take time to, to do various things and it can take on various various kind of aspects you know um from as little as holding a patient's hand um when when they when they when they're obviously showing fear and and anxiety um or maybe slightly deeper showing an interest in their hobbies and, and making provisions for that you know if if they're a chess player get the chess board out you know um um, some of the other examples were um, we had a music therapist once, which is a really powerful thing to have in, in a hospice, and I wish we could bring it back. Um, and she, um, she she got involved with a patient who who loved um, the band Guns N' Roses. Right. So um, I forget the rules for a minute, but you know, one afternoon we were blaring Guns N' Roses out of the day therapy room, and he was there in his his Guns N' Roses T-shirt. Oh, fabulous! You know, so <laughs> fantastic! Yeah. yeah, I never never thought that yeah. would happen. Um, and maybe we tell this story many times and it maybe hides some of the day-to-day fantastic things that happen. But I think one story that kind of captures it all was um, we had a, a lady who, who clearly only had a few days left, unfortunately. Um, and her, her dying wish was to hear see her horse um, one more time. Um, now, now, clearly, we, we couldn't take her in the car and, and out to the, to no. the field to, to see the horse. So we brought the horse to her, oh, wow. <laughs> and it was a, a fantastic team effort. You know, we 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 enlisted the help of somebody local who had a horse box, and then the uh, the clinical team and the facilities team brought the horse all the way around the back of the hospice into um, like a, a set of French doors for where the where the patient had their room, and um, yeah, the the horse poked his nose through, through the door, and she was able to, to stroke his nose one oh, last time, which wow. you know. If that's not a tearjerker, yeah, then I'm not sure what uh, yeah, is. Yeah, you, know? you, you will set me off. I think that, you know, 
you know, at the end of the day, we're all dying, aren't we? we we're, we're dying from the moment we're born. Um, and I, and, but that, if I were working in that kind of environment and I were able to do that for somebody, I think it would shift me. I, I already, you know, and you're talking about it, it, it creates a physical sort of shift in me. Um, and I think that must be incredibly powerful um, almost therapy for the team that that are helping the patients and their loved ones, no? I'd hope so. I mean, I wouldn't want to speak f- for them too much because they're, they're, in, they're in kind of entrenched in this every day and, and I'm, I'm very, very careful not to, if patronising is the right word, I'm not sure because I'll never be in that situation in, in terms of the emotional um, challenges that they face. But I, I would really hope that they derive some satisfaction from that and um, you know, some of the nurses I've been speaking to recently, they some of them, some of them say they, they don't want to be treated as heroes. They they just want a fair break and a, and a fair place to work and and a bit of support. You know, and and if, if we can't give them that, then you know, what are we doing? Well, exactly. I mean, we spend so much time at work, and they're doing um, such a valuable service that um, yeah, I mean, people should feel fairly. Um, fairly treated, I suppose. Um, but apart from giving the the team sort of flexibility to follow their heart, as it were, um, and do the right thing in the right moment, what are the other things that you do as a leader that, uh, or you feel that you can do as a leader that helps protect their sense of well-being? Um, are, are you able to share anything around that? Yeah, I think it's maybe two aspects. One is more unseen, and I'm not expecting anybody to give me credit for it because it's part of my role. But you know, I've been fighting for our clinical team for the last couple of years with really, to to make sure our, our NHS organisation pays us fairly, so that we can pay them mm-hmm. fairly and, and, and at the same rate as as NHS nurses. Um, as I say, I'm not looking for credit for that. It, it's for me, it's the bare minimum, but it's just not the situation at the moment. So there's a huge amount of negotiation and persuasion and um, you know, use of the media and all that kind of things going on in the background, which I'm, I'm very, very happy to take on as a challenge. But it comes back to my drive, really. Why why do I do this? Why do I bother? Well, because the cause is worth it and those people who are delivering on our cause are, are worth it as well. So, you know, I feel that very, very strongly. But as I say, that most of that is unseen and, and I'm easy with that. That's not a problem. Yeah. Um, what that does, though, is, is detracts away from what I know I should be doing, I want to do, is to engage with those people more. So I might be um, behind a closed door on a on a Zoom call with, with some NHS manager or whatever it might be, and they won't see me for hours or days on end, possibly. Yes. So while I'm doing what I think is really, really valuable work, it takes me away from, you know, every leader should show a presence, every leader, leader needs to walk the walk, and I miss that sometimes. So... Um, I think that's where I need to keep not improving because I, I know I can do it, but it's um, making sure I've got it on the agenda is just as important as, uh, you know, writing a board paper, engaging with funders and those kind of things as well, because all of it counts, I think. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's the that's the, te- the sort of the natural tension in any senior leadership role, isn't it? It's, it's being seen, being available, um, having your finger on the pulse, as it were, but actually doing the nitty-gritty work of making sure the business is funded well, sustainable, going in the right direction. There, there's, there's, there's a lot to it. Um, 
how do you, if you don't mind me asking, how do you protect yourself in this, your own, your own well-being, your own sort of um, finding a source of happiness at work? How, what, do you, what are some of the things you do for yourself, Tristan? I think just in the work sense, we are a, a multi kind of dimensional organization. So there's, there's a, a, an income generation aspect and, and quite a fun part to, to some, some degree, although there's a serious message about raising money, but getting involved in fundraising events, those kind of things, um, you know, maybe just, just offering an extra pair of hands as a volunteer with, with those kind of events, not the leader, but just, just being there. And that helps with the kind of connection to the team, but it's a, away from the heavy focused work that you might usually be involved in so that 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 helps i think and that that's where our sense of community comes in a lot i think um and then um i think the hybrid working has worked um so when i'm when i'm in the hospice on a number of days a week my, my head is there and, and i can concentrate on maybe some of this liaison and engagement kind of work that i want to do mm-hmm. rather than closing the door of the office um but then when i'm at home it's focus time head down do do the um the hard yards if you like the the um the the document based work the the policy the you know the um, the negotiation side of things we can you could, you could do from anywhere but I think that that break from the two works I think yeah yeah I can imagine um, anything yeah. else and then outside of work I've got a very supportive family I've I've got a busy family life which I enjoy um, although it's quite tiring at times um, <laughs> you've got young children yeah. don't you <laughs> yeah fairly fairly young yeah they're they're getting more and more independent but you know the need needs are changing um, I obviously have a very supportive wife um, and then for myself um, you know managing mental health is never far from the agenda these days. Um, and I'm very conscious of it, you know, it's, it's, it's important to keep the balance. So um, things like uh, connecting to nature, which which is always advocated as a way of doing it, really, really works for me. And I'm lucky to live in an area which is really beautiful and there's, there's plenty of opportunities. Um, and then when I think I want, I need a real reset, um, I, I love mountaineering as well. So um, a walk in the mountains for a day will, will, will bring me back as a, as a much better person usually. Yeah, that, that sense of... Um... I don't know if it's perspective, but it is connecting to something that's broader and reminding us of, you know, we play a small part in this big, big, big world. Uh, you're, you're living in the right place for mountaineering, aren't you? Yeah, we're very lucky. It's on the doorstep. We, we kind of jokingly call it our back garden here in, in Erari, uh, as, as we call it in Welsh. Um yeah, and, and what what you said about feeling small does you some good sometimes. You you, yes. you kind of battle to the top of a mountain and look at the the world around you and realise how how small and really insignificant you are, which does you no harm at all, really. No, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't. I think because sometimes we can live too much in our own head, uh, which yeah. which is a good thing. I mean, but I think in some ways, particularly if you've got a a, a senior leadership role, I mean, it, there and you you've got so much. Um, so much responsibility, but what what would you say have been the biggest uh, successes and challenges that you've experienced in your in the efforts to create the right kind of um, I want to say happy workplace, but uh, a, a workplace where people feel fulfilled? Are you able to sort of share some of your what you would characterise as your biggest successes and maybe still challenges that you're dealing with? Yeah, so the, the pleasant side first, maybe the successes. Um, 
you know, I'm quite proud to have driven uh, and delivered on a project that uh, resulted in the first ever hospice on on the island of Anglesey being opened uh, nearly a couple of years ago now. Oh wow! Um, and you know, you don't like to blow your own trumpet some sometimes, but I know if I hadn't driven that, it would never have happened. I I, I know that in my heart. Um, I had a lot of people around me to help, but I really put a lot of heart and soul into that project and. It's one of my proudest ever achievements professionally, I think. So that, that's that's one I, I reflect on really well. And rightly so. I think that's an amazing achievement. Yeah, and it's successful now. You know, they, we've we've seen nearly 200 patients in the first couple of years. So it shows the need was there. So um, I haven't succeeded in everything I've done. I've had a few failures as well, but that one stands out as as, as a great one. Uh, and maybe the other one, which, which really counts in terms of recognition of the hospice and, and the income generation, um, I don't take personal credit for this one because there were other people who were far more dominant in making it happen than I was. But but during lockdown, um, we used various means and engagement methods. And I truly believe we were probably the, the most prominent charity in North Wales during that time. Um, we might have dipped a bit after after that kind of high level, but we're, we're still right up there. So, you know, the conscious efforts some of our teams made to, to make the hospice recognisable in branding and audience share and all of those kind of things. Um, again, something that's quite difficult to put your finger on in measuring, but it's so, so important for, for our future. Mm, oh, absolutely. And challenges that you you still want to conquer is what's out there? Uh, challenges, which kind of is an ongoing one, was definitely culture change for, from, for the hospice. As I mentioned, you know, maybe rather cryptically that we were good at caring for our nurses, or caring for our, our patients, but not so good at caring for our nurses and, and wider staff. And we, I think we've still got a way to go there. But um, things like terms and conditions, um, dignity and respect, um, attitude to work, all those kind of things, which really go back to my core values. And I didn't feel that they were present. And I, I know I've still got some work to do as far as that goes, but I'm, I'm genuinely trying to create a, a high performance culture where people are kind to each other. I, I can't put it any simpler than that, but behind that lies a lot of work and, and challenges, as I'm sure you can imagine. Oh, absolutely. And but I think it's, it's, it's a really noble, worthwhile, um, just ambition, I guess, you know, or vision or, or, or you know, just a, a reason for being. I think um, we certainly need we certainly need more kindness in the world. And I think, yeah. you know, that the, the world can be such a dark place sometimes with so much negativity that it's the small acts of kindness. Like you were talking, they're small but significant. Like you were talking about that lady with her dying wish of seeing her horse again. I mean, you know, imagine just being able to, those those moments of kindness. And I think we, we've all got the power to do that. Doesn't We don't need to be working necessarily in the, the kind of environment that you're in on a day-to-day basis. But I, I think we should all be trying to do as many acts of kindness as we possibly can. I totally agree. You know that there's more than enough nastiness going on in the world at the moment, isn't it? So why why would we want to to, to add to that, really? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're trying to create an organisation where there was an example just to, just this week of, of somebody felt they they breached some regulations and they they came to me and reported it, and you know I, I concluded they probably hadn't. They it wasn't good practice, but you know the no harm came to it. So. They, they came expecting disciplinary processes and we, we, we talked it out and it absolutely is not, you know, but I, I really like the fact that they felt they could report and discuss it with me. That's the kind of culture and environment I'm trying to create. And um, 
it's just um, really important that the people feel they're comfortable in that kind of position. Well, we all, the thing is, as human beings, we all make mistakes. And, but that feeling that you can trust somebody enough and trust the system enough to be transparent about it, um, you know, knowing that the consequences might not be pleasant. I think brave move on somebody revealing that to you, but clearly there's a culture there that um, it feels as if it's safe to do that. So, you know, which leads me on to something else, that, you know, another question, because I'm conscious that for people listening, um, you know, some people have not a lot of time on their hands. Some people have more time if they've, you know, changing careers or they're, uh, you know, retiring or whatever. But for anybody who's listening and who perhaps, perhaps wants to consider working at St. David's or a hospice in their particular area, what's the kind of advice you would give them on how to make the first move? Yeah, this is an interesting one because we, we have our own recruitment challenges like like anybody else and, and we've made our fair share of mistakes in, in recruitment so over the years and bringing people into the hospice who sometimes through no, no fault of their own were just not the appropriate people to work there. But um, I think I would always say um, you need to come through the door initially with, with the right attitude because if that's missing, we, we are going to struggle. Yes. Um, so, you know, my, my chairman at the hospice has this mantra of um, being kind to the people, but hard on the system. And I really like that. Oh, yeah. I think it's a really great way to approach it. Um, I take a bit more of an informal approach and it doesn't apply everywhere. But, you know, m m what I say to people is don't break the law. Yes. And don't damage the hospice's reputation. Right. Uh, okay. And mostly, you know, the, the rest of it will be OK. You know, the kind kindness is a prerequisite, really. But... In terms of getting involved with hospices, there's main, many opportunities. You, you, you could you could join the hospice as a volunteer. You could take part in some of our events. Um, you could possibly fundraise for us, um, or you could just just come and see, see us and talk to us about what kind of careers that we can offer. Because I struggle to think of an organisation that's so diverse in opportunities, usually from kind of the clinical, um, retail, fundraising, admin, regulatory, health and safety facilities, all those kind of things. It's um, it's, it's a very, very wide range of skills that we need. So we're always on the lookout for, for good people with, with, with the same kind of approach that we have um, to welcome to the, them to the team. Yeah, I think um, when I think about, um, I'm thinking about myself now offering services in, in that context, I would think, well, you know, it's fundraising or visiting or helping out making the tea or whatever it is, sort of quite um, valuable but fairly basic um, ways of helping out. But I suppose that given the range of um, the business, as it were, you know, the, the type of expertise that you need, it, you, you know, there must be, a, a lot of people out there with a lot of valuable experience, say in the professional services, that could lend a hand. Am I right in sort of thinking that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we have what you might call our more traditional volunteers who are absolutely essential to what we do day to day. So they might be working on a reception or they might be on a inpatient unit helping 
provide refreshments to patients and families and, and those kind of things or or they might be doing the really mundane things of, of packing envelopes to go to our donors but you know without them we, we wouldn't be able to operate so you know that, that those traditional roles are incredibly important to us but there's also other ways you know that people could support us who, who may be not keen to do that kind of thing but um we had uh, uh, an ex-trustee who was a, a very, very experienced commercial lawyer, for example, um, and we, we have over 20 leases for various properties in, in our retail business and, and others that we, we have at any one time, which is quite a legal challenge, you know, in, in terms of making sure that the terms and conditions are right for us. But uh, he was, or he is in his 80s, and he used to, to review leases for us with 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 vigor, um, sitting in his conservatory with a glass of whiskey, you know. Wow. Um, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he's brought a few of our landlords to tears with his, with some of his challenging comments, but it's been great for us. Yeah. Know? Well, at protecting uh, your 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 purpose and your business, and and actually doing some really. Um, probably meaningful work that brought him joy you know taking your own professional achievements and background and applying it to a really good cause I mean it would make me feel pretty good so well I, is there anything that I haven't asked you given your journalistic background <laughs> given is there anything I haven't asked you that I perhaps should have in the context of happiness at work Tristan what do you think I don't think that we haven't covered anything anything major. I I, um, I think I'm inc incredibly privileged to hold the role I'm in. I, I've been able to, to shape it to a direction and, and add my own kind of interpretation skills and experience to it, which I think has benefited the hospice. But to be to be trusted with this kind of role by, by um, a former chairman that, that brought me into the organisation, I'll never forget that because um, here I am 10, 10, 10 years down the line and it's it, it, I, I can't see any other role that will do in my career that will be as, as fulfilling as and as important as this. So I, I just have a lot of gratitude to that. And I've, I sometimes have to remind myself of it and, and, you know, maybe not behave like a spoiled brat sometimes. Um, but, you <laughs> I'm know. sure you don't. I'm sure you <laughs> uh, don't. Uh, and I get riled and angry about stuff that really doesn't matter sometimes. But eventually I'll remind myself about how lucky I am and, and how, how grateful I should be that I've been trusted with this kind of privileged role. Yeah, well, we all do that. Don't be so hard on yourself, I think. But uh, <laughs> but what what um, if you anybody listening and, and thinking about, you know, if you were giving some final uh, pieces of advice in terms of uh, creating that an environment that is um, conducive to people thriving and uh, being treated with dignity uh, that you mentioned dignity and I think that's absolutely true not just for the patients but obviously for the staff do you have any sort of um, words of wisdom that you would like to leave us with I think you can you can do all the management qualifications in the world. You can read all the management podcasts and books and theories, which which all of them can be very helpful. But it, I think it boils down to a very, very simple sentiment of of treat people like you'd like it to be treated yourself. And I, I strongly believe uh, most of the time, if you can stick to that, then then you'll be on the right track. I, I, I... I think you're absolutely right. And I've absolutely, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Really thank you for your time because I know it's really valuable. Um, thank you for joining us on this episode of The Joy Factory. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're Once again, thanks to Tristan, who I thought did a wonderful job of describing the value anchors and approach that helped achieve fulfillment and promote kindness in an environment that really is at the sharp end of humanity. 
I particularly like the instinct of being kind to each other, but being hard on the system. Please join us for the next episode where I'll be chatting to our next guest and discovering their thoughts about how we connect and create happiness for ourselves and others. Mm -hmm.